welcome again. Uh, my name is Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the teaching pastor here uh, for Redemption Peoria. Uh, John kind of laid out all the announcements, so I'm going to kind of jump right in. Uh, we are in the book of Matthew, uh, if you don't know, and, and we're not going through the entire book, though we do believe that um, going through the, the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is the best way to understand the Bible. Um, we're currently just taking a section of Scripture in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount specifically, and going through it. We believe this is the greatest sermon ever preached, so we're going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we're excited to be doing that. Um, if you already have an open, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5, and I want to jump right in uh, with this. Here, here's the, the truth, though. If you are new, um, or you've only kind of come just maybe just this last week, uh, you might be a little disoriented. As as to what's going on. Uh, so I need to do some setup, uh, just a little bit, not as much as I did the first week. If you were here the first week, we started in the Sermon on the Mount. I took probably 30 minutes of a 40-minute sermon um, really setting up what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And here's where it really comes from. Before we get to chapter 5 of Matthew, in chapter 4, Jesus is surrounded by a great, clou- uh, great crowd. And he's surrounded by this crowd because he's been going around healing people. And when he's healing people, he's showing them something. And what he's showing them is the thing that he's constantly teaching them about. It's the thing that he talks about most. It's mentioned a hundred times in the New Testament. We as Christians know very little about it, but it's the the thing that the entire Bible is about. It's what is consummated in the New Testament, what the Old Testament was pushing towards and found in Jesus. And it's this thing called the kingdom of God. And what we came to find out is the kingdom of God is this kingdom where Jesus is this king in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. So you and I right now are surrounded by um, people who are are citizens of or uh, in an age of that has a ruler that is not of this world, and this may sound really weird, but is Satan, okay? Now, that sounds like if you're new or you're not a Christian, like, okay, but, but, but we really believe our worldview would put in front of us to go, hey, listen, you live in this world that right now the prince of the polity of the air, Satan himself, is really guiding the minds, the hearts, the thoughts of the people around you. But Jesus comes on the scene. He infiltrates that system. He infiltrates that kingdom and says, I've brought a way that... That is the true way to live, the real way things are supposed to be. And that's important because we recognize, whether you're Christian or not in here, that we're in a time, in an age, in the kingdom of darkness, where things are not the way they're supposed to be. We, we know that. I mean, we see that. We feel it every time we lose someone, every time someone hurts us, any time, time we uh, feel the, the injustice of the world. It rattles us in such a way that we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. And the same is true when we continue to strive for joy and happiness in things, and it leaves us empty because idols never fail to fail. Maybe if you do more. Maybe if you do more. Maybe if you do more. I mean, growing up with drug addicts as parents, um, I, I saw this firsthand. You think more meth is going to satisfy, but there will never be enough meth. And as crazy as that may sound, that's true for you going to second, third base. That's true for you walking into casino. That's true for you flirting with him or her. That's true because this world can't satisfy you. And Jesus comes on the scene in such a way to say, I've brought a kingdom that is real joy. I've brought a kingdom and things the way they're supposed to be. And I promise you, everything you're looking for can be found in me and in my kingdom. 
And so we're to seek that kingdom before anything else. And the things that we're looking for will actually be found in that. And so that's what we're told. This kingdom is a big deal. And what Jesus does as he starts his sermon is he gives us indicators of people who are in that kingdom, citizens of that kingdom. And he says, in God's kingdom, there are the meek, they're, they're humble, there are those who, who, who long for righteousness, who thirst for righteousness, who are persecuted for righteousness sake. There's these type of people in this kingdom. It's not that you can conjure up meekness, right? I'm so meek. You can't do that. You, you, can't, you can't make yourself hunger and thirst for righteousness, but if you are in God's kingdom as a citizen of the kingdom, he does that within you, and we see the fruits of that all over. And then what we were told is, even though this kingdom exists on earth, again, as crazy as this may sound, we can't see it. And so as Christians, if you're a Christian in here right now, you recognize that you, in the kingdom of darkness, are a light infiltrating that darkness. And now you come as salt and light, showing people the way things are supposed to be. You know how you're looking for joy in that? I promise you it's found in this. I know you, you see how you're, you're, you're stealing, climbing up the corporate ladder trying to do this? I promise you this is the only way it's found. We are reflecting the king to this darkness. And it's good. And it's good. And now suddenly, Faith comes up here and reads a verse that feels like it's totally random. Listen to what he says, how he starts this. So he's talking about us being salt and light. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's almost like you're sitting there with the crowd listening. Yeah, this is the kingdom of God. We got the Beatitudes. We're salt and light. And then he's talking about, I don't think I didn't come to abolish the law. And you're kind of looking around going, no one said that, Jesus. What What are you talking about right now? Like, it seems super random, and because of that, and because obviously it's not, um, we, we got to do some talking before, and, and I, I don't always like doing this, but it seems as of late it's kind of the norm to set up the context uh, a little more than usual, and we need to do that because the people um, understand where Jesus is coming from. These four, five, maybe 10,000 people that are surrounding Jesus, listening to him preach the sermon, know what he's saying, but we don't know why he's randomly making this statement. So, Christian or not Christian, I'm not trying to patronize anyone, I got to catch you up to the story. So, here's what we know. Things are broken because God makes things the way they're supposed to be, and man chooses not God. And when he chooses not God, things fall apart. And that's the reason. That heartache I talked about, like that joy you're striving for but can't find it, it's all because of Genesis 3. It's all because the world is broken, but God does not give up on man. Matter of fact, he doesn't give up on man so much so that he has a plan before the foundations of the world. He knew that we were going to choose not him. We knew, he knew we were going to choose sin. So he has this plan. And so he finds this guy, Abraham, and he says, here's the deal. In the midst of all this brokenness, I'm going to make you and your kids my people. I don't have a people right now, and I'm going to make them my people. And this is from Abraham. He has Isaac, who has Jacob. Jacob changes his name to Israel, and Israel becomes the Israelites. That's how we have the nation of Israel currently, geographically, and the people group. And so now the people of Israel are God's people in our story. Now here's what happens. These people grow and grow and grow, and they don't have a place really to grow. And so where they're growing is in this land called Egypt. Now some of you, Christian or not, are starting to track with the story because you know what happens next, right? The people of Israel, uh, Israel are growing within Egypt. Pharaoh doesn't like that. So what's he do? Hey, let's put them in slavery. And so the people of Israel for 400 years are in slavery and God's got a plan. He's got a plan. And so he's going to save those people. Now, this requires a lot of us uh, to, to have biblical knowledge. And again, if you don't have it, uh, I, I'm just trying to catch you up to speed here because this next part is a big deal. When God chooses to save these people out of, uh, out of Egypt, save his people that he promised Abraham with, that he made a covenant with, if you don't know what a covenant is, it's like an agreement. He made this agreement that I'm going to have a people from you. When he has this people, he saves them. Here's the deal. They come out of Egypt 
and they don't even really know who God is. I mean, they know God just saved them. They watched waters part. They saw a bunch of plagues, but they don't know him. Like, like, like they know the people before them, before they were slaves, followed him. They knew the story of Abraham and uh, Isaac. They knew these stories, but, but, but suddenly they were in slavery, and now here they're free. I mean, we're talking about over a million people who are told when they can go to the bathroom, when they can eat, what they're to do with their babies when they're born. Over and over and over, there were things that the people of Egypt subjugated on the people of Israel, and now they're free. And now they're free. And so here's what God does. Using Moses to rescue them, he brings the people of Israel out of Egypt in this freedom, and he gives them a way to follow him. Hey, you don't know me, but I want you to know me. And so I want you to follow these rules. I want you to follow this law. And, and, and for the first time ever, if you're reading your Bible in the story, you get to a section of scripture that you have no idea what's going on. If you ever read your Bible chronologically, you're reading Genesis, you're like, okay, this is kind of crazy. And then you're reading Exodus, this is cool. And then you read about ways you should boil goats and how they shouldn't be in its mother's milk. And you're like, I... I didn't plan on doing that, but thank you for making sure I I don't do that. And so you don't know what to do with the law. You don't know how to handle it. But the people of Israel at the time were all about it. And and here's why. Because God gives this law um, a lot of ways like, like 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 a speeding sign, like a speed limit sign. Because now they're free and they don't know how to act. And in the same way you drive, you see 45 miles an hour. Because fear of, of punishments or, or breaking the law, you keep to that speed. Because if you go past it, there's punishment. And so, so God is trying to show these people, here's how you follow. If you break this, there's going to be punishment. Matter of fact, Martin Luther, uh, from the 1600s, he says this, As a wild beast is tied to keep it from running amok, so the law bridles mad and furious man to keep him from running wild. So God gives them the law, so now they have some structure, but it's more than that. Because check it out. God, remember that agreement that he made with Abraham and the agreement he makes with Moses? Here's what he does. I've made this agreement with you. Here's how you can keep your half of the agreement. And, and we know this to be true. Check this out. We know this to be true. Because if you grew up in church, you saw the Ten Commandments on the wall. But I almost guarantee you, you did not know that in chapter 20 of Exodus, where those Ten Commandments start, starts in verse 3 where you started memorizing. Show God should, uh, no God should have, uh, I should have no gods before me. I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't steal. I shouldn't commit adultery. I shouldn't kill anyone. Like, you know those things. But there are two verses before the Ten Commandments start. And these two verses are paramount to understanding the next 613 rules that God gives. Listen to it. This is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the commandments. Now that may not feel like a big deal, but listen to what he just did. He said, remember something. I rescued you. I saved you. I'm your God. Now here's how you can be my people. I already did this for you. Now here's how you can follow. But there's a problem. Hebrews 8, 7 says there was a fault in this covenant that God made, which is hilarious because God is sovereign, right? And so it almost feels like he didn't know what he was doing, but he has this awesome plan. And, and the fault is that, that people um, would follow this law, but they didn't really want to. And so God's heart or their heart was still far from God, even though they were doing all the right things. And, and, and even more than that, some of them didn't care to follow at all. And so, you know, my son is eight years old. And last year when he was seven, 
um, there was a point where I came home and uh, I, Candace said, said, hey, buddy, come here, give me a hug. And he didn't want to. He's like in too cool mode or whatever. And I said, get over there and give your mother a hug. And so he starts crying. And I go, get your butt over there and give your mother a hug. Now, he, with tears, goes over and hugs his mother's waist. Did we accomplish what we wanted to? Yes. Yes, we did. Okay. Now, the, the truth is, he gave his mom a hug, but ain't nobody want a forced hug. So here's, here's what the law did. It, it made the people of God act right, but like an MRI, it only showed the problem. It didn't fix it. So, so, so they went under, the, they got scanned, we saw the cancer, but the, the, the rules, the ways to do things, these things, they didn't solve the problem, and God knows this, and so God sees that covenant and says, no, 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 there's something wrong with your heart. You can get your actions right, but there's something wrong with your heart. You can go to church every week, but there's something wrong with your heart. You understand? Don't, I get charismatic, I'll do it. I'll do it. So, so, so here we find God, as the timeline goes on, lays out a plan that he has. And he tells it through this, the, through this man named Jeremiah, who's a prophet. God uses these men to say, hey, I want you to tell the people of Israel this. And so he reveals to the people of Israel his plan. And this is what it is in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So before, here's this old covenant, but God's saying, there's still something wrong with the heart. You, you, you can try to do these actions, but I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going I'm to find a way to deal with, with something more than just your actions. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you hear what he just said? I have a law. I have a way that I I think is ultimately best for you to do and follow. But I'm going to write this law, not on tablets of stone, but I'm going to bring nice hot water and melt your frozen heart beautiful. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with his sermon? Why is this context important? Because Jesus believes he's fulfilling Jeremiah 31. Jesus is preaching this sermon because he believes that the kingdom of God is that covenant. He he believes so much so that he's willing to go to the cross for it, that he is God incarnate, and he has brought the covenant that our hearts needed. That's a big deal. So much so that um, you have uh, in your Bible, if you're new to Christianity, on one side, you're going to have the Old Testament, right? So you're going to have um, probably a little under two-thirds of, of the writing is the Old Testament, and then a little more than, than a third is, is the, the New Testament. So you have this kind of broken up Old Testament and New Testament, and, and that word testament actually could be translated covenant. Like you have an old covenant that we see, and we'll find out why, it's, why that's important in a second, and then you have now this new covenant. And actually, that's why we take communion every single week, to remember the covenant that Jesus came to fulfill, that he's going to write God's law on our heart. This is, this is awesome. 
And so in his kingdom, we can't force meekness. It's, it's a reflection of what he's done. He will take away our iniquity. He will remove our sin. And the kingdom of God is us responding to his good grace. Anything else is demonic. You understand? Trying to earn it in any other way is the Mosaic law, is false, is not Christian. So let's get to our text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. If we can get this, guys, especially you church folk who grew up in church, who know church culture well, who know how to, to, to say the hallelujahs and win, uh, man, this is, this is a big deal. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So, so we just read that, and the first thing he's going to come out of the gate is, but remember that old law? It's important. Now, it's important so much so that the crowd knows this. That crowd, remember in Matthew 4? Um, their lives are literally guided by this law. So when he says come to fulfill it, they're hearing law and they're thinking, that's how I draw near to God. And Jesus now is suddenly saying, I didn't come to remove that law. I came to fulfill that law. Okay, good. So, so you're telling us how to draw near to God. And, 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 and this is a game changer for them and, and hopefully for us because as they're understanding like the, the, the rules and regulations, I mean, even the parts of their day, they knew what time of day it was based on what was going on in the temple. In the same way we grow up understanding our constitutional rights and the amendments and the Bill of Rights, as a child, we learn these things because it's the law of our land. Israel was governed by Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You understand? They, they, they were memorizing parts of Bible that you don't even like reading. And so here they are, they know the rules, they know the regulations, and they're going, you're here to fulfill that. Now, fulfillment is, is, is weird because um, I, I think in some ways it's, it's, it's a both and. In a lot of ways, he's going to show us how he fulfills many parts of the law. So there's the, like the sacrificial and ceremonial and civic parts of the law. For example, just, just this is an easy one, if you grew up in church, you most likely know there's a part of the law that when, when you sin, when you and I would sin if we were an Israelite, that an animal has to be sacrificed to atone for our sins. Now, you may think that's weird, but that was the law. Weird or not, not even explain it right now. There's the rule. Blood needs to be shed. And what Jesus does is he fulfills that part of the law. You don't have to offer animal sacrifices anymore because I'm going to give myself. But it's not just that. It's not just that. When I was uh, 16 years old, I get saved. So around 17 years old, I I wanted to learn guitar. And um, in early 2000s, I don't know if it's true still, but um, like every Christian, like the rule was you had to learn guitar or something, right? So there'd be like weird, like 10, 15 dudes at camp, like all playing the guitar, singing together. And you're like, you guys are losers. Um, and, and so I was one of those guys at one point. I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, I had 12 steps, get out of it and stuff like that. No, um, no, no. But, but here, here's, if anybody who's ever learned music, you, you know uh, something about learning music. You recognize uh, that before you can ever get to like just jamming out, you, you've got to take time, days, weeks, months, maybe years, just learning the basics, just learning scales. And honestly, it's, it's not that fun. Like, do, 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 okay? You're just learning scales. But eventually, as you learn those scales more and more, what you do is you fulfill the purpose of those scales. There is freedom in those scales. There is the ability to thrive with those scales. Now here's what's interesting. Because I was 17 years old and I was impatient, because I was 17 years old and it was easy at that time because you didn't have to be a good guitar player to get on the stage. This is, you know, this, anyway, this is like the early Hillsong era. And so the, um, so, so we, we, I, all I learned was G, D, E minor, C, right? If you, like, you know, 
GD, that's like every Christian song you've ever heard in your entire life, okay? So, so I learned, I learned, just learned how to play this. But eventually, my buddy, Chappie, that's his real name, um, he, he w- w- was learning scales. And while I was learning G, D, E minor, C, I could play songs faster. I put on the show, but eventually I, I peaked. I got to a point where it was just the show. I, I know how to play those chords, but that doesn't mean I know how to play the guitar. He knew how to play the guitar. And eventually he found freedom in that. He fulfilled the purpose of the scales. And Jesus comes on the scene and he's saying, listen, you, you, you may do the law and perform the law. You may be like Sean at 17, but I'm telling you, I'm going to show you how to thrive in it. I, I fulfilled it. The purpose of the scales, they have reason. They have rhyme. They're, they're, you don't just learn scales for the learning, sake of learning scales. I've come to fulfill why God gave the law. He goes on to say this. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So not only does it matter, it's not going anywhere. And it's important, going back to the law, remember, uh, I just said Jesus, he, he uh, fulfilled the role of sacrifice for animals. Well, well, there's these parts that Jesus fulfills in part of the Old Testament, but there's also these prophecies that he's still coming to fulfill. And the Old Testament, us as Christians, we can look back and go, wow, Look how good Jesus is in fulfilling those sacrificial laws. But more than that, we can read parts of Daniel and we can read parts of Isaiah and parts of the Psalms and go, wow, there's something more coming. Uh, Jesus's ministry, his, his kingdom here on earth is not done yet. It will be fulfilled incompleted. It will be, and I quote, accomplished. So the law is not going anywhere. Now, it's important, but what are we supposed to do with this? What are we as Christians supposed to do with this? Because again, no one woke up this morning going, all right, I've got to boil my goat. I got to do the dishes. No one, right? And if you did, you weren't thinking whether or not it should be in its mother's milk. And if you were, it's weird. I... Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of, God, uh, kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this becomes extremely problematic because there are 613 laws. And Jesus just said, if anyone tells you to relax or or compromise when it comes to those laws, they're going to be called least. You're going to be called least in this new kingdom. What is he getting at, though? What is he getting at? Is he telling us to think through how we boil goats in milk? Is he telling us how to put put two different uh, buttons together or grow our our hair a certain amount of length to make sure two fabrics don't touch? Is that what he's telling us? We shouldn't relax on any of those things. Um, uh, Rachel Evans and a guy named A.J. Jacobs uh, both actually tried this out. Rachel Evans, about 2010, wrote a book on this that she lived to biblical womanhood where she looked at the some 600 laws in the Old Testament and said, for one year, I am going to live out to a T every single one of these laws. And the same, same, now she's a conservative evangelical, but A.J. Jacobs did the same thing, and he's an agnostic. And, and both stories are hilarious. You know, like, so every single month for um, a Rachel Evans, she would have to set a tent outside of her house with a marked out area during her menstrual cycle, because that's what the law demands. She would have to do certain things as a woman where she would have to literally sleep outside for one week every single month. There's a part in A.J. Jacobs' book where he's talking with a guy and he finds out he's an adulterer. And so he, he politely asks him, hey, man, listen, um, part of the law is that I have to stone adulterers. Um, <laughs> is it okay if I throw a rock at you? And, so, and he lets him. He lets him. So he's like, okay, thank you. Okay. Now, now is that what God wants? 
Is, is, does God want us to look at these laws in the Old Testament and want us to live every single one of them? So when Jesus says to relax them, is, is that what he means? I argue, no, of course not. Let me, let me prove it to you. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, it says this. If you accept circumcision, now, if you don't know what circumcision is, it's something we do to our male children, even in our own society. But to the Jews, it was a sign that you were following the law. It was a sign that you were a Jew of Jews. And this is what he says about that. So just think of that as law. If you accept circumcision or the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So in this moment, Jesus is not going against what Paul says in Galatians 5. Because what Paul just said in Galatians 5 is if you try to live up to the law, you will fail. This is impossible. You cannot do it. But is Jesus saying, well, well, don't relax it. No, no, there's something more going on. Because Jesus recognizes, just like Paul in Galatians 5, that you trying to fulfill the law, you trying to do all the right things, stoning an adulterer when it happens, setting a, a tent outside uh, of your own property during your menstrual period, all these things are, are for what? Like, they're, they're, they're action, and it's the way that we process righteousness. So um, uh, Aaron Daly, he's the pastor of Redemption Alhambra, when we get together uh, 10 days before the Sunday of our passage, so last Wednesday... <clears throat> excuse me, last Wednesday, uh, we were in a room and all the teaching pastors get together and we talk about the passage. And we were talking about this passage. And he had said how his dad is, um, is a missionary and has been a missionary in Kuwait for the last two decades. And he said one of the biggest issues with um, a society that's predominantly 99% Muslim is the fact that the Muslims who say they're Muslim for the most part, aren't actually Muslims. Meaning that the way that they, um, they, they act on the outside in, in public is not the way that they really are. And so a lot of the issues he runs into is asking why you even do things because it's based on religion. So you have women who put on these crazy garbs and cover their faces, but under all of that, they have designer clothing on because they're on their way that night to some hidden Western club. And so, so, so it's this kind of juxtaposition that we see rules, regulation, but that doesn't produce righteousness. That's not, so Jesus isn't going, unless you relax on any of these things, you better do every single one of them. No, no, there's something more. And the answer is actually found in verse 20. And, 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 and as we read verse 20, before you look at it, let me just um, say this to you. Some of you who grew up in church, I need to talk to you for a second. Those of you who have been in the church game for a while, I really need your attention. Because a lot of you guys have read this next verse through the lens of Way of the Master and Kirk Cameron, meaning that you've re- read it through the lens of impossibility. So when it says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. You read that as if Jesus is going, So you better be better than the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, because if you're not better than them, you're never going to get into heaven. There's a problem with the way in reading that. Because Jesus would be disagreeing with the rest of the New Testament. And to be honest with you, the rest of his own teachings. Because here's the reality. Even if you were better than the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it still wouldn't be good enough. Acts 13, 39, very simple, the back half of it. And there's tons of verses I can go to this. Galatians and Romans are chock full of it. But this is the simplest way I can read it. Just hear how simple this is. You cannot be justified by the law of Moses. You cannot be justified by the law of Moses. So what is he saying? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, there's two words there, exceeds and righteousness. And and, and this is important to the way that we view our relationship with God. Because for some of us, we view righteousness 
as action. So when someone is a good person, they're righteous. When they do good things, that's righteousness. Righteousness has nothing to do with action. It has everything to do with standing. Positionally, where are you? So, so what I mean by that, when you read that word, uh, um, or when, I'll read it again, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, this word exceeds is, is the word on. And you see it right after this righteousness. So, so it has to go above and beyond, right? It has to be more than the, the Pharisees. Unfortunately, that's not really what the word means. See, the, the word exceeding, going beyond, being a better person. Maybe you don't watch PG-13 movies. Maybe you don't watch PG movies. Maybe you don't watch G movies. Maybe you don't, don't listen to this music. And maybe you only listen to a certain amount of cuss words. Or maybe you only gamble a little bit. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe, or maybe. And, and so you try to find this, this, these holes in righteousness, how far you can go, what lines you can draw. But the reality is it doesn't have to do with exceeding in amount or quantity. It's completely different. It has everything to do with quality of righteousness. So much so that the New Living Translation actually translates it like this. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than, better. So you think of righteousness, and this is where you've got to change it. You've got to change the way that you're thinking. If, you, if you've ever gone to a, a country, there's probably about 10 countries that drive on the left-hand side of the road. And I remember spending a couple days in London, and, and when we were there, just being in the back of a taxi, everything was so off. It was disorienting because you're taking left-hand turns when you don't feel like you're in the right position. I mean, you even see this in one-way streets downtown. Like, it feels weird to take a left-hand turn from the left-hand lane. And so here, it's, it's a disorienting, but hear me, righteousness is not right doing. That's not how we view righteousness. Righteousness is right standing positionally. That guy, A.J. Jacobs, I was talking with the guy um, uh, b- between services, and he brought up a great point. With that guy, A.J. Jacobs, he recognized something at the end of, Jacobs recognized something at the end of his book. He said, I could try to fulfill the law of the Old Testament the best I could, but when I came to the New Testament, I realized it literally was impossible for me to fulfill because it required a relationship. Like, I, I can't fake that. Now, now, nobody bases solid relationships on that, right? Nobody goes, three years into marriage, what would you like me to do? I'd like you to do the dishes. Okay, I'll do the dishes. What would you like me to do? I'd like you to do the laundry. Okay, I'll do the laundry. Because that would be weird. Because, because in relationship, there's this love component that's different. Positionally, what Jesus is saying is, which I would argue when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, it's above, it's different, it's more mature, it's in a better, it's in a new covenant, I would believe you can live out verse 20. Your righteousness, based on Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, does exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. It does. We, in this moment, fulfill the law, the purpose of the law. We are doing what originally God wanted, to be his people, so I've read a couple books that I've mentioned before as, as to what we're doing. And one of them is Sinclair Ferguson, The Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says about this. We cannot relax when it comes to following God's law. But unless we see this law through the lens of Christ, we will never enter the kingdom of, of God. You are not in the old covenant of the Mosaic law anymore. Now you are under the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2, 1 Corinthians 9, 21. You getting it right is not the point. You trusting the one who did and allowing him to get you right is the only way to truly follow the God of the Bible. So the people of Israel, here's what's crazy. There were people who were born ethnically Jews, but according to Romans 2.28, were not circumcised at heart. 
So they followed the right things, but the people of God transitioned from the Old Testament, New Testament. What we come to find out is are a people of faith, not action. Now don't hear, hear that pejoratively. Don't hear that. uh, What I mean, like as Christians, we should take action on certain issues. My point is when we think of righteousness, it's not how much I can do, what I can do. That person's righteous because they get it right. No, hear me in God's kingdom. It's upside down. We start first with Jesus making you right and you to fulfill the law of Christ respond to Jesus making you right. That is Christianity. Hear me, hear me. You've got to get out of the old way. You've got to, because it's permeating you. If you don't remind yourself of the gospel often enough, you're going to continue to continue thinking like the Mosaic law. As long as I do, righteousness is doing, righteousness is doing. But hear me, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law did it better than anyone. But, but he calls them whitewashed tombs. They're, they're clean on the outside, but inside there's dead bones. Matthew 23. This is important. This is important. Let me give you another quote as we start to wrap this thing up. Dallas Willard, who wrote um, The Divine Conspiracy, I quoted it from him a couple weeks ago, uh, he says this, how can one keep the law? Jesus well knew the answer to this question. And that is why he told those who wanted to know how to keep the law of God to put their confidence in, in the one God who he had sent. So this is one of my favorite passages of the Bible. I don't mean to stop at this point, but Jesus is asked, what, how do I fulfill the commandments? And Jesus just simply goes like this, just believe in the one he sent. So you're going, okay, um, I want lines. How, like how far can I go with her? Tell me, is it second base? Like, how much should I give? Do do I need to give 10%, 12%, 20%? Like, I I need rules. I need laws. But what can I do? And Jesus goes, breathe, bro. Trust in me. You want to know how to follow God? John 6, trust in the one he sent. I'm standing right here. Trust in me. This is the answer. This is the new covenant. It starts with grace, with love. It starts with Jesus fulfilling and then us responding. He goes on to say this. This line is so money. Jesus, he knew that we cannot keep the law by trying to keep the law. This is what's so crazy about the kingdom of God. You thinking you're awesome because you didn't watch Deadpool makes you unawesome. In the kingdom of God, you thinking... Your right action is getting you right before God as if your sanctification, big fancy word, meaning growing closer to God or being set apart, is what ultimately pleases God and not your justification. Big fancy word, meaning what Jesus did on the cross for you. You getting it twisted, you getting it the wrong way is demonic, Galatians 3. There's someone has performed witchcraft over you. Someone has bewitched you to thinking that. That is not the kingdom of God. You cannot fulfill the law by trying to fulfill the law, but rather, hear this, I love it. To succeed in keeping the law, one must aim to something other and something more. One must aim to become the kind of person from whom the deeds of the law naturally flow. So we can fulfill the law. We can fulfill the purpose of the law, but it's not in boiling goats, man. It's, it's not in having two fabrics put together. It's not in keeping your hair a certain length. It's none of those things. It's in, according to Ephesians 5, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. It is in relationship. It is in starting with what God did first. And hear me, that's what God did with the law originally. I am your God. I rescued you. Now follow me. But when we get it twisted, we get it upside down, we miss it. We miss it. Our righteousness in this moment does not exceed the right. We become like the Pharisees. We become like the Sadducees. 
I'll leave you with a quote from uh, John Bunyan. If you don't know who he is, he wrote a pretty famous book. You should look it up. Um, And uh, this is what he says. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Run, John, run, the law commands. (laughs) The law tells you to do things. The problem is it doesn't give you feet or hands. It it binds you up. You, You do the right thing, but to what end? Suddenly, God is in your debt. So when, when everything hits the fan and everything is broken, you're frustrated at God because you are a good person, aren't you? God, why would you allow this to happen? I, I've been going to church. Why? God isn't in your debt. God isn't in your debt. Just because you get things right. No, hear me. You're in his debt. Like, like in this moment, he has freed you. And that's exactly what he says. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly. It doesn't just tell me to run. It bids me fly and it gives me wings. There is a freedom. There is a fulfilling of following Jesus Christ that, hear me, to the Christians, only you can get. Your friend won't get. Your friend will hear can'ts, have tos, want tos, but, but, but won't, where all the while you hear for my most joy, for the fulfillment of the way God has made me. I know that synthetic version of happiness and joy is there, but I know in the kingdom of God, following his way is ultimately what's best for me. He is good. He is really good. Let's pray.